0: Hey guys, before we get into the episode, I just wanted to uh, plug a couple things related to what we're talking about today. Um, Ross and I had a really good conversation about uh, the protests and everything that's been going on the last couple weeks. So if you go to our Whole9Sports Twitter, at Whole9Sports, you'll find a tweet that we donated $50 to four different organizations uh, related to the Black Lives Matter movement. we, if you guys wanna match those donations, please do so. Um, like I said, you can find that on Twitter. If you send those receipts to anyone associated with Homeland sports, we would really appreciate it, and we will um, probably do something with those in the future. Um, in addition, if you are looking for ways to contribute outside of that, uh, please go to blacklivesmatter.carrd.co. It's a huge, ever-updating list of places you can donate, ways you can get involved, Uh, protest maps, everything like that. It's a really good resource for what's going on right now. And then additionally, uh, we just wanted to plug one foundation in particular, uh, Campaign Zero. Uh, They're a great organization, one that Ross recommended personally. Um, So if you guys are looking for a very specific place to donate, um, that's the one that we would suggest. And then just do be aware that this episode contains some pretty heavy material. Um, Obviously, we're talking about a, a very heavy time in U.S. history right now, and we appreciate you guys listening as always, Um, and now I'm going to kick it over to the episode. Thank you guys. Hello guys, welcome back to the Whole9Draft podcast. This is your co-host Alex Katzen. Uh, Joining me today is not Josh, he is dealing with a family issue, Um, so our thoughts go out to him, but who is joining me today is Ross Jackson from whole 9 Sports. All Saints considered. Locked on Saints. Is there anything else? Did I miss one? I, no, I think
1: I think that's it for right now. <laughs>
0: right. Uh, very busy man. Um, one of our favorite people on the entire planet. Oh, uh, man. You can find him on Twitter at Ross Jackson Nola. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, as always, at Alex Katzen. That's Katzen with a K. Find Josh on Twitter at JoshBerg0611. And find the show at WN Pod. Uh, Today is going to be a little bit of a different episode. Um, We brought Ross on specifically because we wanted to talk about the protests and stuff that have been going on in the world for the last two weeks or so. Um, Josh and I are obviously people who are not directly affected by the stuff going on in the world. Um, Josh is about as white as white can be, and I am half Japanese, half white. Um, So we wanted to bring Ross on just to talk about a little bit about his experience, um, what he thinks people like Josh and I can do uh, to help with the movement right now, and uh, stuff like that. So Ross, I'm just going to kind of give you the floor if you want to talk about just like what your experience is like, just like day to day, and you know, let's just go from there.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, for me, that's that's a huge thing, but I'll try to keep it, you know, kind of framed around what the current conversation around the nation is right now, which is in reference to uh, racism, police brutality, systemic oppression. Right. And and mm-hmm. sy- both systemic and systematic. Systematic in that it is supported by a system uh, that is doing exactly what it was designed to do. And then systemic in that it affects a whole or part of a group of people. Right. Right. Uh, and so it applies to both and it is uh, vastly supported by systems that are in place protocols that are in place and lack of action amongst people and lack of action amongst uh, particularly those that are in policy making positions and people that can affect policy uh, and that's like local government is, is what i'm referring to in a lot of that mm-hmm. and so you know when when we talk a little bit about what it is that people can do i think that the biggest thing is show up <laughs> is yeah. show up you know um i you know i i come from you know a background of studies in all of this in critical theory and, and things like that i've subscribed to certain um you know black philosophies and things like that that help me to sort of understand and have a vocabulary for what things are at this time and because you know it, it is something that affects it does affect everyone uh, indirectly or directly in that Everyone knows someone that's affected by it. And in particular, what the biggest piece of conversation is right now, particularly when we talk about people like Tony McDade, when we talk about uh, uh, George Floyd, when we talk about uh, uh, Breonna Taylor, Atiana, um, Atiana Jefferson, like when we talk about these people, uh, sorry, Tatiana Jefferson, uh, when we talk about these people, we're talking about people that are, you know, uh, that were killed by police. We're, we're talking about police brutality, which is right. something that affects not just the black community, but all communities. And, you know, as a black person, I'm more than happy to be, you know, the driving vehicle or part of the driving voice behind all of it. Um, You know, we were we're looking now at, you know, police systems that are just now starting to reform their approaches that certainly still need, you know, there's a lot of work to be done and everything. But why in 2020 are we perfecting systems of discipline? when we've been watching this happen for decades, you know what I mean? And so it is something that affects everyone regardless of who happens to be, um, not to be reductionist but who happens to be, who happens to have the spotlight at any particular time if that makes sense.
0: Right, yeah, definitely. Um, I will say like as a like I mentioned at the top, I'm half Japanese and so I've said, I've been very vocal about my thoughts about this on Twitter, Mm -hmm. um, but I've experienced, like, very, much more casual racism, I think, in my mm-hmm. life. Um, you know, like, there are, there have been a couple times where, like, people have called me slurs and, like, I've gotten into fights because of it. Um, but for the most part, like, it was always very casual racism. Like, I had, I had really bad anxiety about uh, driving when I first started driving. And mm-hmm. so I failed my license test a couple times and, you know, a couple quote-unquote friends of mine or just people that knew me were like oh of course you can't drive it's because you're asian right um, and like i had you know like of course you're good at math and science which i really excelled mm-hmm. in because you're asian and like even when i played basketball like i um ran into people being like oh well you're doing like you know like making jokes or whatever about like oh well you're doing all the calculus about like the perfect arc on the shot or whatever and that's why you're such a good shooter or whatever it was Yikes. <laughs> um, just like things that just like didn't make any sense right um and like at the time like it was very easy to kind of like brush them off as jokes i guess because i knew it was more casual and it was like people that i considered my friends um but it was always like a much more like obviously and that's like A little bit harmful just like mentally of just like knowing Mm -hmm. that people think that your abilities are tied to who you like who you are fundamentally as a person but I think it's significantly less harmful and dangerous than the racism that african-american people are facing right now and have faced for decades and that's scary and I Mm -hmm. like I just want to like recognize that that that's that must be terrifying
1: yeah, I mean it's you know the we we suffer from a lot of the same things and you know just that it's reformed or it looks different, right? And right. And, and so there is the sort of what I would call covert racism, which is mm-hmm. a little bit about what you're describing. Or I can look at times to where, you know, I, I remember getting hired for a job and walking in and on the first day, my as the only black employee, my name tag and that I wore because I'll I'll, expl- I'll talk a little bit about that in a moment, mm-hmm. but that I wore. Uh, just not my name, Ross, but instead Token, Token, my identity uh, became not who I was, but just simply the fact that I was the only black person working at that particular place. Mm -hmm. And like, I remember things like that. I remember, you know, um, and and the funny thing is like, it's not even about remembering, like it's even now, like working within uh, communities, within the arts, sometimes people who believe that they've done all the work that they need to do already end up perpetuating these different types of transgressions or or rather aggressions. And I know we tend to use the phrases like microaggression is a really popular sort of classification, but all aggression is aggression, right? So there's no need to reduce it. Um, And so I can talk about it as covert dog whistling, you know, type of verbiage, like the word thug being used in media, things like that. And then I can talk about more overt things like these several times that I've been pushed up against the wall because I was you know, leaving a store with something that I had purchased, but there's no way that I could have purchased it. Right. Like those types of things. Or I remember my fiance and I going and we were we had just moved into a new apartment. We were really excited. There was this beautiful uh, painting or photo of um, uh, of New York City, the New York City skyline, which Mm -hmm. like we were had spent we spent her and I have spent much time in New York City. We work in the arts. So like it's a Mecca for that. And so like we would always go. And so we had this and I remember us walking out and, you know, we have this humongous picture and half of it is in a bag that it doesn't actually fit in. But we have right. this humongous picture and, you know, stopped on the on the way out, you know, and, and and my fiance, thankfully, being vocal enough to say, like, why are you bothering him? You know what right. I mean? And so it's just like it, it those, those types of little things that feel little in the moment because, a lot of times i don't know maybe maybe the same for you i'm not sure but mm-hmm. a lot of times in those moments your reaction is that of like incredulous like is this yeah. actually happening or am i like you know what i mean because we all kind of have to take a moment to step back we don't have to but i think we're all we all intrinsically do take a moment step back and say am I, it, it, is what i think happening actually what's happening right now or am i misreading something and stuff so there's a critical thought process that has to go through it unless particular words are used and it's blatantly overt and blatantly obvious things like that which i've run into you know those types of things as well uh, on several occasions not even that long ago (laughs) (laughs) you know Um, i was called that outside of my place of my like my current or most recent place of work not too long ago like there's not not by anybody that works there but just from walking outside because god forbid i take up space but you know, like that kind of thing and, you know, uh, operating as long as I did within the walls of academia, which is always a question of what is the degree of anti-blackness as opposed to whether or not it is anti-black when it comes to academia and education. And I'm sure you have your own experiences with that as well and stuff. And so, but the thing that, that becomes so hard and the thing that, you know, is, for for people that are young and that are experiencing these types of things is kind of what we we have both described is our complacency within it sometimes or our complicit nature within it sometimes right because we all uh, let me not say we all I can only speak for myself right Mm -hmm. I can only speak from my experience I had a lot of like imposter syndrome problems issues when I was younger In that I didn't feel like I actually deserved or belonged to be where I was because, you know, I had a I had a father at one point at home that didn't look like me. And that was very like overtly problematic (laughs) and, you know, always reminded me that I didn't deserve what I had and things like that. And so I kind of grew up with that. And and through that, I picked up this sort of attitude, particularly when I was in white spaces or predominantly white spaces. Right that I wasn't supposed to be there. You know what yeah. I mean? And that was sometimes perpetuated by the people that surrounded me. It wasn't unjustified. It wasn't something that I just like stamped on myself. Sometimes it was perpetuated by people. And then because right. of that, when things happen like what you've described in within your group of friends, the things that I've described like that token um that token name badge and and mm-hmm. and similar things where you've experienced in terms of the usage of slurs and things like that, when those things happened, I had to make a choice about whether or not I I had to because I didn't feel like I belong there, did I have to just deal with it so that maybe I could belong there? Or did I further distance myself and buy into the fact that, you know, and, and, and speak up, which would then only further the rift between me and the people that I had to spend my day with every day? Right. Uh, and, think, and does that put me in danger as well?
0: Right, yeah, yeah. And I think what you're describing reminds me a lot of like, so for me growing up, I grew up very, I'm very lucky that I grew up the way that I did. I grew up upper middle class. I lived in the suburbs in Southern California. Mm -hmm. It was very, my life, I don't want to say my life was easy, but it was certainly not as difficult as some people's is. Mm -hmm. Um, But the community that I lived in was primarily white. And I remember as a kid wanting to fit in so badly Mm -hmm. that um, I have a Japanese middle name and a English middle name. um, and the Japanese middle name comes first, and so technically on legal documents, I'm Alexander A. Katzen, but I always, 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 on any standardized test or anything where you had to put a middle initial, um, through elementary, middle school, up until high school, I always put N for my English middle name, mm-hmm. because I wanted people to think that I was white. I wanted people right. to think that I was just white with dark, with dark air, mm-hmm. um, because I, my brother and I both pass for white fairly easily Mm -hmm. um where like especially now um, when i was a kid it was a little bit tougher because i my i was a lot i was a lot darker because i lived in southern california i was outside of the time Um, sure it was a lot easier to tell but it wasn't until my my grandpa that lived that lives in japan died in my freshman year of high school where i started using my japanese middle name on documents where i started like embracing that side of me and Mm -hmm. being comfortable saying like yeah i'm I'm Asian, and I think, too, like, the. A lot of what you're describing, like I, I don't feel like I've necessarily experienced. To, that degree, because I think that. A lot of times in this country, in particular, Asians are kind of looked at as like an acceptable minority in some ways. Right, the model minority right, stigma. Like mm-hmm. Right. Right. Um, More like the community that i lived in like it was primarily white but like those of us that weren't white were asian Uh, mm -hmm. and i think like in in my brief forays into academia now like with my research that i do like being asian is very acceptable um like and i think it's you know it's because like a lot of the places that i've lived at least there's a lot of Chinese immigrants. There's a lot of Vietnamese immigrants. There's a lot of Filipino immigrants. There's you know a lot of Japanese immigrants. There's a lot of Asian people that are just around and doing things that we understand um, and that we accept as being like positive contributions to society. You know, like mm-hmm. there, like there isn't a news story any time that like an Asian person becomes a doctor or like say, you know save someone's life or something like that. But there right. is when a black person does it a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I I think that I've struggled with recently in terms of like my like capability to speak out about this of like I've experienced this but at the same time like I, I'm very cognizant of the fact that like the minority that I am is the like you said model minority. And so in a sense like it's a little bit easier, but like there's still covert Racism going on against Mm -hmm. those people, and and so for me it kind of became a thing of like, I don't, you know, without co-opting the movement that's going on with Lives Matter and everything right now, but also like kind of spotlighting like, hey, like while we're at it, like can we fix all of these other issues too, or like is that something for a different time?
1: Right. Yeah, and I just want to be clear, like when I bring up the 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 sort of stigma of model minority. I'm strictly speaking on it in terms of its existence, not my support of it in in any way, shape, form or fashion. Um, But you know, what you describe uh, in in terms of action, and and why it's important is something that I think is is a good conversation to have, because I'll start with a story. I remember um, years ago, I was living in Arkansas at the time, Mm -hmm. which surprise surprise I experienced racism in arkansas who would have imagined <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> that does sound
0: like a place where this happen.
1: <laughs> um i was i was in a car that my uh girlfriend at the time was driving who who was who is white um and um she sped through a, not sped through but you know passed through a stop sign without stopping uh and and got pulled over I remember the cop going up to like her side of the window. Now this is the first time that I had ever been pulled over in a car that I wasn't driving, right? So my experience when I get when I get pulled over whether, you know, and, and usually like it's it's very clearly a checkup, mm-hmm. but when those happen is that I have to sit and wait for probably about 5 to 10 minutes, two or three more police cars show up. There's usually sure. two or three at the least. And then someone usually comes up on the driver's side, somebody comes up on the passenger side, and then there are usually three or four people behind the car outside of their vehicle. Mm-hmm. And that's usually my experience when when pulled over. Mm-hmm. And to my understanding, that's just how it worked, that that's just what getting right. pulled over yeah. was. And then things like, you know, license, registration, insurance, all that other stuff, um, which I don't think is out of the ordinary. I've heard people tell me that it's out of the ordinary to be asked for all three of those things, mm-hmm. but I, I don't know. Um right. But my understanding is that that's perfectly normal. But this was this was unique because it was one officer, one car, who walked up to the immediately walked up to the driver's side, you know, talked to uh, uh, my now ex-girlfriend, far far time long Mm ex-girlfriend, and then noticed me in the passenger seat. Right. Um, Her license was never taken. There was no real conversation about, hey, you ran through a stop sign, this is why I pulled you over, although she asked several times. But instead, he went back to his car, and then maybe two minutes later, another squad car showed up, and then two people came to the passenger side and asked me to give them my license, my information, and then had me step out the car, go to the back of the car, and then get frists and checked and all this other stuff, and you know, pushed up against the back of the car and everything. Um, then they returned me to my to you know to to the front because obviously like I did not have it I'm like the least intimidating person in the entire world like there's right. there's no, you're not gonna find anything and so like they they brought me back to the to the to the car and then then they took her and asked her to to go with her and again no no request for license anything like that but asked mm-hmm. her to about the car brought her over the car and then questioned her in the back and what I found out later is that the question that they were asking her was like is that man hurting you are you afraid. Mm Um, is everything okay? Like, are, is he in the car? Like, or did you let him in the car? Like, how do you, Mm -hmm. and you know, she had to be like, that's literally like my boyfriend of a year, like, you know what I mean? Um, everything. And so like, I think about things like that. And and the reason why that's an important story is not necessarily to express like my frustration with policing, Mm -hmm. but to give an example of the specificity of policing of black people. And what I mean by that is that usually something like that. Requires or is contingent upon transgression. Transgression, i.e., committing, some, like doing something wrong, whether it be violent, whether it just be illegality, whatever it might be. Usually, it's contingent upon, and violence itself is usually contingent upon some type of transgression. Right. In the Black community, that's not the case. That type of violence, and, and remember too, for, you know, I know you don't have to remember this, but just for anybody that's listening, um, violence isn't specific to physical violence, right? Right. When we talk about violence, we can talk about any scope of it across the spectrum. And so violence being contingent upon transgression is not in existence in terms of like what crime and punishment looks like for black folks mm-hmm. and, and the black community. Um, you know, uh, it was, uh, you know, you look at, let's say, the criminal justice system mm-hmm. and the way that it is dispersed. 13% of America is black, over 70% of the prison population is black well that's a problem. Um, (laughs) um, And then you look at the number of nonviolent offenders and the amount of time that they serve versus, you know, white counterparts who have violent offenses in the time that they serve and how comparable unfortunately those two things are uh, when they shouldn't be. And the thing is about all of it is that when people stand up and they say things like, you know, Black Lives Matter and things like that, and people immediately want to come back with like, well, all lives matter, things like that. It's like, yes, we we know that. <laughs> right. But unfortunately, we have to remind you of one element of that. Right. And that's, that's you know, that's why, you know, the powerful women that started Black Lives Matter started Black Lives Matter. And that that is all in address to the idea and beyond just racism and systemic oppression, but also police brutality. And the thing about it is that, like, systemic oppression, police brutality, again, those aren't things that— there are things that disproportionately affect the black community, but they're not things that strictly affect the black community in that right. if one person stands up and fights against that, that person is standing up and fighting for good for all people. And yeah. you, and, and people who get bogged down in needing to be, you know, verbally acknowledged as a part of the importance miss that big time. Right. And so, so the thing about all of that is that when you look at, um, you look at action in the way that it's it's portrayed as being constructive toward all of this. A lot of people sometimes will take individual offense with something that is much bigger than themselves. Right. So I'm just, you know, you and I are describing instances of racism that are both covert, overt, unmasked, unthought. Mm-hmm. Um, some people may hear that and immediately just jump into thought processes like, well, I'm not like that. Or, well, thank God I'm not like that. Right. Right giving themselves credit individually for something that's actually a much much bigger problem than themselves and this is a this is where usually a breakdown in communication happens when you're having discourse with someone and you're having a dialogue with someone about this is that they immediately want to prove themselves or exonerate themselves of the issues that are much larger than indeed themselves and what i often tell people when they do that is like if you <laughs> individually were the problem then we would have handled it already like this mm-hmm. then this wouldn't be an issue right, right. but Right. But what people tend to do is internalized, internalized criticism against something that really doesn't have doesn't necessarily speak to just them as a person. Right. People who talk about like I've had conversations about white white supremacy before, for instance, I mean, obviously, but. Having those conversations sometimes leads to somebody saying, "Well, I don't think I'm superior to you," and it's like, "Okay, that's not what white superiority is. Right, yeah. <laughs> that's not what <laughs> white like, supremacy is. White supremacy is not a you and me issue. White supremacy is the fact that you know, a hundred percent of the you know uh, of you know uh, the top ten richest people in America are white. Like that is white supremacy, right?" A hundred percent. I mean, obviously, a hundred percent of, you know, president and vice president are white policymakers. Ninety six percent are white. The Freedom Caucus over 90 percent are white. Like you look at things like that and you can say and you can point to that and you can say that is what we're referring to when it comes to white supremacy. Look at the right. you know, look at the look at Congress, look at policymakers, look at look at, you know, business owners, Like look at that. And then that's where white supremacy is displayed. And what we can do sometimes. Is that our complacency in it in that like if you've never heard those statistics before or if you've never shared those statistics before and understood why those are an important why that's important information within Mm -hmm. white supremacy then we individually like this is my first time sharing this with you so therefore my complacency prior to this moment has helped to further and normalize that process you know what i mean and that's that's part of growth that's part of education right the steps of the steps Mm -hmm. of revolution are to educate agitate and organize so the education has to come first with the education then you can agitate a community and, and 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 by that i mean activate a community and then that community organizes and then stands against something so standing against something in favor of something or in in forbearance of something, right, and that I want to witness, you know, bear witness to this thing that's happening are all effective means of protesting and pushing um, pushing change forward. Even though change is hard to find uh, in, in moments like this, there's still individual things that happen within local communities, local, you know, local government and things like that that can better a situation incrementally throughout time.
0: Right. Yeah, I just looked it up while you were talking um, and there are sixteen Asian Americans in Congress. Right. And four Pacific Islanders. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like there's what, like four hundred people total in mm-hmm. Congress or something like that? Like some ginormous number compared to sixteen? Right. Um, that's
1: that's that's the example. It's it's uh five hundred and thirty five members of Congress. Yeah. And so it's like okay, so what are the percentages Within that, right? Because 100 right. of those are Senate and in 435 are House. So the check and balance system that's currently in place <clears throat> is not, which, and, and what I mean by check and balance, I mean representatives of the right. country do not accurately represent the country. Does right. that make sense?
0: Yeah, 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 exactly. And I remember like when I went home for Christmas break this year, uh, my brother and my mom and I were watching the the democratic debates. And it was when, uh, Andrew Yang was still running uh, Mm -hmm. before he dropped out of the race eventually. And all three of us kind of were in agreement. Like, yeah, like we really, we really resonate with like what this guy's talking about. We think that like, this guy has good ideas, but he's never going to win because he's Chinese. Mm. Uh, and like, that was just the reality. Um, like even if he got to the point where he got the nomination, like he wasn't going to win because he's Chinese. Um, And there is, right now, especially um, amongst people who have kind of been captured by the rhetoric of our current president, there Mm -hmm. are people who are afraid of China right now. Um, And Right, right. You can say, like, maybe rightfully so or whatever because they're planning an economic takeover or whatever, you know, whatever you want to say. But the fact of the matter is people are afraid of China right now. And so Mm -hmm. he was never going to win because he's Chinese. And... I think that that, like, that establishment that we've put in place where we just assume that the president is going to be white, um, right, is damaging because that person doesn't necessarily accurately represent everyone that is in, that lives in this country. And I think that when, I mean, I, I can't speak to this a ton, but because I was very young when Obama got voted into office, I was in fifth grade when he first got inaugurated. But I think mm-hmm. that um, from conversations that I've had with older people and thinking about it a little bit, like as I got older while he was still in office, I think that a lot of minorities kind of claimed him because he, he was like the closest that a lot of people felt like they were going to get to being accurately represented right. in a public-facing role in this country. And that's... That sucks. Like mm-hmm. plain and simple, that just sucks. That sucks a lot. Yeah. Uh, and then and
1: then the the, the era that followed that right. um over those eight years, America lived in this in this space of patting itself on the back.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Which was incredibly damaging and incredibly harmful because right. this is a country that just loves to say that they've done just enough. And yeah. we can't beat yeah. that. We can't do that, right? And and we right. entered this uh, Michelle Alexander, who is, who is an incredible writer, she wrote an incredible book called uh, The New Jim Crow uh, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and talked about the era of colorblindness, uh, which right. I think is just a disgusting, disgusting <clears throat> idea where people will say, yeah. well, I don't, I don't see color. And it's right. like, that's, that's not entirely the point. I, I right. understand the, the good intent behind that, but it's not entirely the point. The point is to see color, but not judge color. And not judge because exactly. of color. Like, I, I have endlessly in my time referred to myself as a black man, not African-American, because right. I'm not really sure that my people are even from Africa. I'm pretty sure I'm West Indian or West Indies. And so it's like it doesn't even – it's not even a part of that. So, right. you know, to, to say things like, you know, in, in theater, a lot of – which is where, like, my early career is mm-hmm. um, outside of sports – I, we the, the terms that get thrown around all the time are like colorblind casting or non-traditional casting, mm-hmm. which both just in their verbiage are aggressive, right? Because right? you're saying colorblind, which means that in order for me to want to cast you, I have to erase you and then put you on this base level of foundational whiteness that I can accept, right? right? I have to erase your experience. I have to erase who you are. I have to erase your hardship
0: mm-hmm.
1: and reduce you to something that is non-representative in order for me to be comfortable with you being in my show, incredibly damaging. And then non-traditional, just the verbiage itself is aggressive, right? Like I'll, I'll cast you, but it ain't traditional. You know what I mean? Like we're, 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 we're rocking the boat by casting you. We're pushing the envelope by casting you. And that shouldn't be the case. And so, you know, it, it, the, the Obama time, which beforehand was very much, you know the same thing that you described with with uh, with uh, Andrew Yang was like, oh, he ain't ever gonna win. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> you know, like it's great that he's here, but he ain't ever go. Gonna... And then you know, thankfully he did. But now, how much longer, right? To right. you know, how how much longer from that point?
0: Especially like in this industry, you know, of, like we we write about sports, mm-hmm. um, and most of the people that I've encountered throughout the course of this job, like especially for football and like even for basketball too, um, sports that are primarily black. Um, most of the people that I've encountered in the community, and this is no knock against them, but most of those people are white. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like we have, we have a disproportionate amount of white people covering a primarily black sport. And that, I don't know. Does that feel weird to you? Um, because like, I think, like, looking at it from the surface of someone, like, kind of removed from the situation, like, it feels Mm -hmm. a little bit weird to me, and I've always felt kind of this imposter syndrome of, like, I'm an Asian American writing about football, a sport that Asian Americans don't really play, and Taylor Mm -hmm. Rapp with the Rams has done a really good job of, like, being very outward, outspoken, and very Mm -hmm. vocal about, like, hey, I'm Chinese, and they had a whole series following him through his rookie year of, like, I'm half Chinese, this is what my life is like, this is me. You know, deal with it. But right. like, I before that, I can't remember like any Asian people really playing in the NFL. Like, there's a couple here and there, but no one that has ever really like made a huge impact. And so I've always had this imposter syndrome. But I don't know. Do you think it's weird or like something that needs to change that like so many people in our industry in particular are white, covering a primarily black sport?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that. I struggle to use this word because I don't like it. I don't mm-hmm. like this word, but I'm going to use it because I think that it's, it's a general enough vocabulary that we can, we can establish common ground. Mm-hmm. Um, I think diversity, diversity within any field is beneficial. Now right, I hate using the word diversity because what does diversity actually mean? Right. right. Two people, <laughs> right. you know what I'm saying? Like it, it doesn't matter, but, but I'll, I'll use that just for, the the basic the, uh, of this the more people of varying backgrounds and the more people of of, people of, um, of uh, that represent different communities helps to make any field better right of um, even even down to just simply not being offensive like when Dove put out lines of uh, of um, of makeup and uh, cosmetic products that said mm-hmm. from from dark to normal skin. Like if they had one person on that board of color approving those marketing, uh, those 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 marketing materials, Mm -hmm. that person would have said, no. (laughs) (laughs) Like in a second, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, Or like, was it Gucci that did like the blackface um, uh, turtleneck thing that goes like that went like all the way up over the mouth and had the big red lips and was all black? Like there was all that kind of stuff. And, you know, H&M, if I remember correctly, put like the little black boy in the I'm a monkey shirt, like Mm -hmm. this, all of this stuff to where like, if you just had a little bit more presence, not not even like a ton of presence, but I I mean, I would I would recommend as much presence as possible of people of color and people of varying communities, right? And it doesn't just come down to people of color, it comes down to trans people, it comes down to people that are a part of, uh, you know, the gay community, it comes down to you know, but non binary people, it comes down to any any representation that you can add and inject into your business, it's going to benefit that business. Mm-hmm. And I think that people have a hard time calculating that because what they hear in that is, well in order for that to happen, then we have to get rid of X amount of white people and then it's like right. taking jobs. But like the athletic just laid off forty six people. Right? right? Vox has Vox has, you know, trashed hundreds of people at this point and everything and so like these things as they happen don't speak toward the detriment of of any of any like specific person it's that whole thing about like pro-black is not anti-white right and you can replace black and white or reverse black and white like you can do whatever um and those things aren't necessarily don't necessarily equate for each other right (laughs) pro-asian is not anti-white in any way you know of course so there's ways to like lift people up, right? And and th- this is the danger in comparative argument. You know, if I look at the fact that you know, uh, George Ooh. Floyd was choked with an officer's knee on his neck for eight and a half minutes, three of which he was, uh, lo- you know, looked to be unconscious, mm-hmm. to and then and then died because of it. If I parallel that with you know, Dylan Roof. Who you know killed nine people in a South Carolina church, at a place of worship, a place of solidarity, a place of of um, of sanctuary mm-hmm. for Black people, and then was you know calmly arrested and stopped off at Burger King so he can get a little something to eat before they took him to the precinct. Now, if I compare those two things, it doesn't mean that <laughs> what people tend to hear is, well, that's what they should have done with George Floyd. They should have arrested him, taken him to Burger King, and then took him to the precinct. And that's not necessarily the case. Right. and and at the and at the on the same other side of the coin i'm not saying that dylan roof should have been you know had his neck you know kneeled on for eight and a half minutes right, i'm just saying that whatever the hell the the basic level of what policing is supposed to look like because i'm not sure anymore yeah. in this country yeah. that that's what I it should look like is. right that that's <laughs> what it should look like for everyone like imagine right. that and so it it is it is a very interesting thing and so like we have to eliminate the comparative argument entirely yeah. And instead, look at just simply what the benefits are in terms, of, in terms of magnifying voices and amplifying voices of people that are previously silenced, not even quieted, but like completely silenced. And so I think that sports writing, I think that theater, which is also predominantly white, I, I'm a part of the Actors' Equity Union, which is 53,000 people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm one of maybe 15 black male stage managers in that 53,000 person union. Right. Now that union represents both actors and stage managers, but stage managers take up about 13% of that 53,000. Mm-hmm. And so you look at 13 out, of 13 out of that 13% and that's still hardly enough. Right. And then you throw in, you know, the other part of the conversation that we're having, you throw in um, Asian and then you throw in Pacific Island at Pacific Islander as those other categories that are so commonly listed and so commonly divided, um, that percentage gets even smaller Right. and all. And so it, it is something that I feel like if we had more of that it would benefit everyone. And that's why you see a lot of journalists right now that are trying to amplify the voices of their person of color counterparts or their counterparts right. of color within within the industry, regardless of whether or not they're covering in the same state, same sport, same whatever. Um, right. I do think, yeah. I mean you look at a guy like Michael Micah Peters at The Ringer, who's an incredible, incredible writer. Yeah. And the the cultural context that he brings to everything that he draws up, whether it be mm-hmm. for sports, for popular culture or whatever it is that he's covering, he has a fantastic job of injecting culture into it to make it accessible to people that are not whose voices are not usually written for. Right. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, definitely. I did want to circle back to two points that you made earlier. The first of which was like all the layoffs and everything that's been happening at, at Vox and at The Athletic and everything. Um, Kofi Yeboah who is hmm. who does content for SB Nation. I don't mm-hmm. know if you know him, but he does he does incredible content. I really enjoy everything that he puts out. Um, tweeted out a couple like a week or two ago that he was looking around the virtual newsroom that they have set up right now. And mm-hmm. he's one of two black people left at SB Nation. Mm-hmm. And then he followed that up when the, the next round of Vox layoffs came out a couple of days ago and said like, yeah, at the time I didn't include those that had been furloughed, um, but all those people got bought out today. So it's it's me and one other guy. right? And like that's it at all of SB Nation, um, which is insane. Right. Um, and like the Ringer Union has tweeted out like they're going to they're going to try to do a better job. I know that they've had a, a, a partnership with NABJ, the mm-hmm. National Association of Black Journalists or something yeah, like of which that. I'm about to exactly. become a member of, by yeah. the way, um, that they they've always had a partnership with them of like um, giving young black journalists internship opportunities there. Um, but I know like they've tweeted out that they're going to do more work on it. Um, I know a lot of other media companies have tweeted out that they're going to do a lot more work on it. Um, so, like, change is happening, but I think it's coming slowly. But I think also, like, there, there is a conversation to be had about, like, why wasn't it happening in the first place? Oh, um, always, yeah. And then the second thing that I wanted to circle back to was, like, your, your point about how this country is always very uh, comfortable with doing just enough. Um, and I think, like, we earlier, like, I guess last week now, Um, on Tuesday when everyone had the black squares and everything Mm -hmm. I think that there was a lot of reaction and in my opinion justifiably so about a lot of people that had just posted the black square without saying anything prior and without saying anything after and Mm -hmm. that was their their only statement on the matter Mm -hmm. Um, and people were upset about that and I know like um I know a couple people who do that and I had conversations with them and you know for some people it was just like well like I just wanted to make my stance clear in case anyone you know wanted to know or in case anyone like thought you know whatever like and I think to a certain extent like it the whole social media aspect of what's been going on it's it's like a very easy way to exonerate yourself of that kind of like oh, well, I'm not that way. Mm -hmm. And it's like, while that's appreciated, right? Like, of course, like you, you like to know that the people that you associate yourselves with are people that don't personally hold these views. At the same time, I think it's important for people in those positions to have conversations with family members that may be in that position, Uh, or Coworkers that may be in that position, or you know, people that they associate with that are outside of your own circle that are in that position. Um, my my younger brother, who's incredible and has done a ton of awesome stuff related to the to the protests and everything, even though he's only eighteen years old, um, mm-hmm. I'm super proud of him. <laughs> um, he had a really good tweet that I kind of pity backed on the other um, a couple weeks ago that was some of you guys clearly have never been called racial slurs on the blacktop and in the classroom and on the street and by quote unquote friends and that's okay because you can use that privilege to help dismantle the racist police state more endemic to this country than a literal pandemic and Mm -hmm. what I had piggybacked that tweet on was yeah like if you're like if you don't have those experiences like you don't need to feel like you're not part of this movement because in fact your voice almost matters I don't want to say matters more but it matters probably just as much than Mm -hmm. the people that are directly affected by this because the people who hold these kind of closed-minded views about race and about equality in this country they're more likely to listen to you than they are to me or to you Ross or Mm -hmm. you know to anyone else that's a minority and has directly experienced it they're more likely to listen to you Someone that they're closely connected with, someone that they can resonate with as another white person, presumably. Mm-hmm. Um, like those people will listen to you, or at least they're more likely to than to listen to us.
1: Yeah, and and you're absolutely right about that, and and that's one of the things where I, you know, I I'm so grateful for the community that we've we've been able to grow, and and you and I have been so fortunate as to do that with Whole Nine Sports, as well as other outlets oh, yeah, and everything. Absolutely. And just the incredible amount of people that we get to be in contact with. And I've gotten, you know, people people know that I'm I'm an open book and that they can come and talk to me and things like Mm -hmm. that, because my approach is always let's establish common ground and mutual respect, and then we'll have a conversation to where we just work on providing education, not educating each other, not the verb, but just providing education and just learning from one another, which I feel like is far more, I mean far more constructive than you know the twitter pissing matches that you see uh, all the time with people just arguing and trying to change each other's mind you can't go into discourse trying with the intent to change someone's mind you activate defenses it doesn't go anywhere Mm -hmm. but instead having those other conversations has been great and and sometimes when i have those conversations people will lead off with hey i I know that i'm white but or hey uh, I'm white, so I feel like I can't really speak on this, but I wanted to know if I could ask you a question because I'm trying to understand more. Th- right. That that type of, of, that's that imposter syndrome on the other side, right? That same right, thing that exactly. we had talked about. Where it's like, oh, I don't deserve to be a part of this conversation, when absolutely you do. Because the thing is, and this goes for everyone, I can speak to this personally because of the way that I've been affected by other black men who have found success in the world, mm-hmm. right? I I every person resonates with people that reflect their experience. Right. And it's so it, it speaks exactly to what you said that every person that no person should be afraid to speak up if the argument is standing against racism, injustice, police brutality, discrimination, prejudice or not. Right. Like if those are your two options <laughs> that it feels like yes, Uh, And speaking toward those things, regardless of who you are, regardless of what you look like, regardless of what you've done in the past, and sometimes especially because of what you've done in the past, uh, you should feel empowered to do that, particularly speaking in favor of the uh, uh, of saving people's lives, essentially, you know, if, if we boil it all the way down to brass tacks and that to me happens just as what you said people tend to resonate with each other. Now, there will be another conversation that has to be had later with like, hey, white person, why did you only listen when white person B spoke to white person A and not black person A spoke to black, I mean, sorry, I spoke to white person A. There's another conversation that has to happen there. But if it's going to save lives to have that conversation later, (laughs) then I'm down with just having that conversation later. You feel me? And so, like, to me, I think that that, that, you know, what you speak to is is an absolute truth and is a great observation that we all have the ability to affect and resonate for and with the people that we reflect. So it's everyone's responsibility to do that when they have the opportunity.
0: Yeah, and I, I do want to mention, like, everyone... I, I've been very proud the last couple weeks to be working for this company, um, mm-hmm. for Whole9Sports. We, like, everyone in internal conversations that we've had has been on the same page and been very open and very vocal. Um, we've done a lot of public facing work about it, you know, just individually and as a collective. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like, obviously we had the, the interview on the whole night sports podcast with uh, mm-hmm. Winston Delata, the third, uh, with Brandon and Dylan, which if you guys haven't listened to that, please go listen to it. It's, it's incredible. It's incredible. Um, that's really the only way to describe it. Um, it's it's an incredible interview and like i have been very i have considered myself very lucky to be working for this collective during Mm -hmm. during this time because i think everyone's been very open-minded and very like willing to admit that their perspective may be wrong and like if we could just extend that out to everyone like i that that would be the ideal for me but yeah um, obviously like we have a lot of work to do to get there and um, you know i think that i i've kind of fallen into this too but i've had conversations with a couple friends about like you know obviously seattle is one of the has been one of the hotbeds of protesting uh, in the last mm-hmm. couple of weeks and there was literally a protest that went right by my apartment yesterday <laughs> um, and i've had conversations with a couple friends it's like oh like do you think we should go out and go and you know there's there's been a couple times where i'm like oh well like one of us is stuck at work so like we can't just like leave our job in the middle of the day to go to this protest and like oh Mm -hmm. well like we don't really have a way to get there because it's in downtown and they shut down the train that goes from campus to downtown because they set the train station downtown on fire Um, (laughs) which like that's a fair reason to shut down a train station. That's a very good reason to shut down the train station. (laughs) Uh, You know? And so like, it's, it's kind of been this like hemming and hawing about it. of Like, Oh, well, like I don't really have a way to get there. Or like, Oh, like I, like I'm stuck doing this other thing or like, you know, just like kind of like getting into the cycle of like making excuses where like, I don't like, I don't need to go. Like, it's not paramount to me that I show up and go out and protest. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've tried my best to be active about it in other ways. Like I said, I've been very vocal on Twitter. Um, I've been matching donations left and right anywhere I mm-hmm. see them, um, trying to you know trying to do my part on it. And I think that for a lot of people, like it, they're they're struggling with how to how to be active about it. Um, and I think that is like the starting point i think we we can kind of agree on is like if you're in a position of privilege and you're struggling with a way to start like just have conversations with your family members with your other privileged friends with your you know people that you work with people that you associate with just Mm -hmm. have conversations with them because i think like we said like those people are more likely to listen to you and we can have that conversation about why they're more likely to listen to you later if we need to
1: Mm -hmm. yeah yeah exactly and i think that there are a lot of people that have to make hard decisions right now because in the midst of these protests that are very important there's also a pandemic outside so you have to be cognizant of that like who else is in your household who do you have who could you potentially affect who if you're asymptomatic right now, could you possibly affect to a point where they affect somebody in their household that right. is at risk or something like that? Like, there's so many things to be concerned about. And I 100% get that. And I'm 100% there. But the other part of it is that the action has to be long-standing. You know, a lot of people are saying, well, you know, all four cops, uh, you know, have been arrested right. in, in, in Minneapolis. So why are we still protesting? Because Breonna Taylor's the people that killed brianna taylor are still out there right you know what i mean the 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 charges and everything are still happening with some of these other people you know tony mcdade who happened since george floyd like those types of things that we have sarah goodman who happened since uh george floyd like there's so many of these people um that have been affected by this that you can't stop right and right. so I think the key is that it, and, and you mentioned this uh, inherently in, in your talks about like matching donations left and right is that like you can't just do one thing like post a black you know, box on your on your Instagram page and then say I did. I do what I need to do, like share resources, share information. And if the resources are money, if the resources are material, if there's a protest that's walking past your house and you have a pallet of water, like resources can be anything. It doesn't have to be monetary. It doesn't have to be financial. And then you have resources and information that you can share just because you're seeing information for the third or fourth time in terms of, here's a list of, uh, you know, places that you can donate doesn't mean that if you pass it on, that someone else won't see it for the first time. Right. Right. You know, not everybody knows what campaign zero is and the type of work that they do. Not everybody, you know, people know black lives matter. People know like organizations like that, that stand out. Right. But if you don't know what campaign zero is, Google it, check it out. You know what I'm saying? Look right. at, exactly. uh, uh, Martin Luther King's speech from 1967, the year before he was assassinated so that you have fodder for when people misuse, uh, Martin Luther King quotes, right. which just yeah. drives me absolutely nuts. Um, Look at you know, read, uh, self-educate as well. Like educate yourself so that you can help to educate others. You know, I, I mentioned that book by Michelle Alexander, the, uh, uh, the New Jim Crow. There's Black Skin, White Mask by France Fanon, which has been on the shelves for centuries now. Like there's there's so many different uh, angles to go, in terms of just educating yourself and taking not even just educating yourself, but just in you know so many different ways that you can take long-standing and long-lasting measures of support that don't stop at again the the bare minimum right because right. you know as somebody that covers the saints i've been covering this drew Brees situation yeah, like was, a hawk I was right i
0: on asking you about that because like, i think yeah drew breeze is a like at least the way that i've seen it thus far um seems to be a good example of someone that had a misunderstanding of why the protests were happening and what was going on and then he got called out on that and rightfully so Uh, but then he had a conversation with his black teammates and with black people around him and he realized that he was wrong and i think that he's done a lot of damage control almost but also like i think that he actually has learned from that and is you know kind of putting putting his money where his mouth is in a sense where he's like, yeah, like I was wrong about this. Like, let me, like, show me what I can do to help because I'm trying to learn from this and like, it is a process and like, please like understand that. But like, I'm trying to learn, I'm trying to do my best to like kind of get up to speed with what needs to be done.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and that's the big thing, right? How do you educate yourself? And then how do you turn that education into long-standing action, which is the thing that everyone's still waiting for when it comes to Drew Brees. Like the statements, the apologies have been nice. Him sparring with Donald Trump has been fun, but where, what, what is the long-standing action? Like what happens next? You know, he's got guys like Demario Davis and Benjamin Watson and Malcolm Jenkins, who are either presently in the organization or not far away from the organization. In Watson's case, Demario right. Davis and Benjamin Watson, compared, I mean, sorry, combined to op to to co-write a bill. They got passed in Louisiana to reduce to to do away with minimum sentencing mm-hmm. and to challenge or to challenge minimum sentencing and to do away and provide uh, in the hopes of providing um, non nonviolent offenders, mm-hmm. nonviolent felons, their voting rights when they get out of jail yeah. so that people that you know, haven't committed capital crimes yeah. can still maintain their rights. When they get out of jail, particularly the the fundamental right of being an American in terms of political power, which is something that Black people have gained, although ontological power is still a much larger question, mm-hmm. but political power in voting is still something that that they want people to have access to, and they did that as as a pair of football players in the NFL, which is why the stick to sports moniker is just so stupid, and right. so you have these people that are around you now what is the action and i do think he's going to come through with action don't get me wrong but that's like kind of what the next step is and that's what i mean when i say you know just like a couple of things on instagram and everything those things are nice but what is the long standing action even if it's even if it's self reflective what is sure. the long standing action that you intend to do moving forward how are companies that are putting out putting out um statements about standing in solidarity with with the black community, how are they looking inward and in improving their own processes, right? right, and changing their own policies, which have helped to either uh, by by being complicit within or helped to further perpetuate white supremacy that has, you know, permeated into these organizations and country and, and companies all across this country because that's what this country was founded upon. Mm-hmm. So. And you can learn more about that in that whole nine sports interview that we were talking about. There's so many of those things that you kind of just go, okay, what's next. I'll say that, you know, um, there's a company out there that is that is Swedish run. I don't know if I can say the name should say the name. I don't know. I would love to give them credit, but Swedish run, but has done an incredible job of saying, here's our stance. And here's what we're doing. We're redacting the names and personal information on every resume that comes across our desk during the hiring process so that we don't make any implicit bias or so we don't allow any implicit bias into our decision-making. And we're making decisions strictly based upon experience. And if they fit the job, we are, you know, overhauling products to make sure that we present more products that are far, that are far more representative of the full-on community of people, as opposed to just individual communities, like, putting out a full-on here's our call to action for ourselves in addition to here's where I stand. What is your personal call to action? What is your personal verb in terms of what it is that you're going to do for yourself? Again, even if it's self, even if it's within yourself, Mm -hmm. what is that thing? And I think that that is where the important answer, quote-unquote, it's hard to call it an answer, right? But the important next step is in terms of how uh, how do we further this movement and further support this movement.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think that's a good place to leave it. I think that's a good way to kind of wrap up that conversation. And just like, what is what is your long-term call to action going to be? Um, so, thank you so much, Ross, for coming on and talking about this with me for the last hour. Um, I learned a lot personally. I, I think the people that listen to this are going to learn a lot. Um, so, thank you so much for coming on. Um, oh absolutely guys, man if you guys want to listen to the interview with Winston that Brennan and Dylan did we will link it in the episode description um, go ahead and find us on Twitter you can find Ross at Ross Jackson Nola find me at Alex Katzen that's Katzen with a K uh, You can find Josh on Twitter at Joshberg Zero Six Point One. find the show at WN DraftPod and of course find Whole9Sports at whole sports And we'll see you guys next time with hopefully a bit of a lighter conversation. But this was an important (laughs) conversation to have. And we we felt like it was important to use our platform to have that conversation. And kind of hopefully encourage some people out there to make a change. um, Kind of find that call to action within themselves. So thank you guys so much for listening. We will see you next time.